Welcome to the Grace City Church Podcast, where we believe that Jesus died to reconcile us to God, to others, and to make us reconcilers. We're so glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're watching, God is doing transforming work in you through this message. Amen. Hey, we're in a series now called The Body, The Building, and The Bride. Um, we actually have cards, and I think last week uh, uh, Plunk had his. Today we're talking about the body, which is the word is soma. And if you'll notice, there's a little hole right here. And you collect the cards. And we've also, and this was my idea that Plunk gave me credit for this idea last week, having a little ring right here that you can put them all together. So at the end of the series, you'll have them all. So I appreciate the credit. First time I ever got recognition for an idea and the first time I ever had an idea. And so um, <clears throat> I don't have a lot of those. So I, I'm, I'm grateful for it. So, hey, y'all, we're talking about the body of Christ today and um, the nature of the body of Christ um, and really what that means. It's kind of... <clears throat> it's, it's, this whole issue of body is fascinating. On the, on the uh, card that I have that the word body is mentioned 144 times in the New Testament. Um, if you look at the book of Hebrews and you look at the Hebrews 10.5, Philippians 2.7, it talks about the physical body of Christ. And here's the imagery that it gives. It says something to this effect in both of those passages, that Jesus had this physical body that was prepared for him on earth. So you get this idea that God fashioned and framed a human body and then poured his image, the fullness of his personality and the will of him and, his, and that the character, the glory of God was then embodied in this body of Jesus. And then Jesus went about this earth and he walked about illustrating, embodying the character and the glory of God. He went about moving in this redemptive, gracious manner to, so that you and I could know God's personality and his values and we could see the love of God in a tangible way. But then what happens? In the book of Acts, Jesus leaves and goes to heaven but then the scripture says that now we are the body of Christ. It uses language and imagery that this group here, us, that we're part of this body. That we're, we're now this tangible representation of the love, the redemptive desires of our Creator, and we're moving about this earth, promoting His kingdom as part of this body. 
It's a beautiful imagery and representation and understand that we are His body. We're all different. We're diverse. We have different talents, different gifts from God, and they function together in a unified sense. And that's what kind of makes us it makes us family. You know, we use those terminologies a lot. If, you're, if you've been here for a while, you will see us use words like unity. You'll see us w- use words like family. And they're not just words that we kind of made up as a way to brand us. They're, they're, they're deeply rooted in the theology of the incarnation of Christ and now that we are Christ's body here on earth. Um, and in Ephesians 1.22, Colossians 1, it says that, that of this body, it says that Jesus is the head. Let me read you a passage. It says, And God placed all things under His feet, meaning Jesus' feet, and appointed Him to be the head over everything, the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. He is our head. He fills us with... He fills this body with Himself, and He's our head. I like the imagery of head, because we kind of get what a head is, don't we? I mean, we recognize the head brings about our mind and our thoughts and our personality and our emotions. We have nervous system, sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic nervous system that really influences everything about the body. And that's what it says about Jesus, that He's, he's our head. He gives us personality. He gives us passion. He gives us emotion. He gives us direction. That, that, I, that this head of the church being Jesus and we are the body, it just it directs us and gives us everything that we need to accomplish what God has called us. Another principle of this body is it is actually... <clears throat> hey, y'all, this is, a, this is a difficult principle to really understand. And if it's difficult to understand, it's real difficult to communicate because you know, the, Bible, the Bible says that we are His body. But it also says that Jesus is the body. Uh, it, there's a passage, it's in Acts... Um, uh, in the book of Acts, where that Jesus, where Paul is persecuting the church, and he was Saul at that time, and so Saul and it was going around from people group, Christian community, Christian household, and he was dragging people out, and he was sending them to jail, and he was one time he was going down the road, and God came to Paul, Saul at the time, and he says, "Hey, why are you persecuting me?" It's fascinating because, because as God was speaking to Paul about persecuting him, he recognized that the body is really Christ's body. That is his body, we are his body, and we are the head. And he is the head, that Jesus is the head of the body. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go through the passage uh, that you just looked at. And we're going to kind of open it up and we're going to look at some of the dynamics around what it means to be in the body of Christ and really how it applies to you and how it applies to me, how it applies to this issue of unity and family. And, and really, it's, it's really to challenge you and I to ask some real fundamental questions. How has he called you to operate or to function in the body of Christ. Um, just kind of a note, I know, I know Plunk talked about this last week. There's this, there's this principle of universal body. 
meaning there is this body of Christ that we are spiritually and supernaturally connected to, people you've never seen and you may not ever seen, that we have this connection, a supernatural connection to, that, that we have this same spirit. We have the same spirit. In it. It's kind of interesting. I went to Uganda Oh, maybe eight years ago. And I met a guy there named Bulentimo. And Bulentimo was from, um, he was from South Sudan. And um, he couldn't have been more different than me um, in, in so many ways. And he, he told the story of his family all being, watching his family being murdered by northern Islamists coming down and murdered his family. And I asked him the question one time. I, was, I said, are you angry? And he said, no, they didn't understand what they were doing. Jesus on the cross, the people saying, I didn't know what they were doing. But anyway, he told one story about being bitten by a black mamba. And he was in a cornfield, and he got bit by a black mamba, and all they really could do, there was no medical treatment for him, and they just picked his, picked his body up, and they laid him in a hut on a mat. And his uncle, who was a pastor like 30 miles away, would, would come to him at least once a week and just pray for him. And he said over time he got better, and now he's a pastor, and he's doing phenomenal work in Sudan and Uganda. But anyway... There couldn't be much difference. You know, the, the, the difference between he and I is incredible. But the connectivity we had in such a short term was nothing short of supernatural because he is my brother in Christ that lives on the other side of the world. That's the universal church. But we also have this, what we're doing here, and it's the local church. In other words, we here are the expression of the body of Christ in this room, in this location, and that's what we're called to do. We're a local expression of the body of Christ. So now, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to get you to turn with me um, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 12. It says, Just as the body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 13. It says, For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews, Gentiles, slaves, or free, and we're all given one Spirit to drink. It's saying there's this body here, and we're all initiated into this family and body by one Spirit, and by one baptism. Here's really what that means. Baptism, as you look at the New Testament, baptism signifies a sign that we are included in this family. Baptism is like a mark on you and on I, illustrating that we have been initiated in to this family. It is, you know, even when we have a baptism service, you know, even when we do this visual representation of, of what it's taught, this is a spiritual baptism, but even when we do the visible representation of that, we dunk somebody and we go, we clap because they go, they're in the family member, they've been initiated. That's really, that's, that, that is what he's speaking about here. What he's saying is this, he is saying that the Spirit has initiated us into this family through the baptism of the Spirit. Baptism of the Spirit means what? It means, you know, that baptism represents someone going down and coming back up. It kind of represents the grave where Jesus died and he came back to life. It illustrates that you and I have been resurrected. 
We're new creations in Christ. We were dead in our transgressions, but Christ, he made us alive. We're these new creatures who have been supernaturally awakened from a death, and now we live in Christ. That baptism also represents a cleansing and represents a bath, meaning now that we can approach a holy God because we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, Meaning when God sees me, he sees you as a new believer. He no longer views us in the way of sin. He no longer views us in the way of stain and shame. He sees us through the lens of Christ. And he declares us as not guilty and cleansed. That's what this spirit of baptism means. It's an initiation. You kind of get initiation. Don Don and I were... uh, We watched a little program last night about... um, gangs that were in Scotland and some of the uh, projects in Scotland and, you've, and, and just how the gangs identify with one another is kind of interesting. You've seen kind of the imagery. They have, maybe they have tattoos. You know, maybe they have gang signs. There's oftentimes an initiation into that gang, right? And sometimes you, you've seen kind of the gauntlet that they go down sometimes. And if you want to be initiated into the gang, you, you walk down that gauntlet and people just pummel you and hit you and bruise you and beat you and shame you. They humiliate you and just bring submission. And at the end of that, then you're, you're initiated into the gang and you may have marks on you. That's similar. The only thing is, is you and I didn't have to walk down that gauntlet and be brutalized and to be hit and humiliated and shamed. That's what Jesus, that's what he did for us. That, that Jesus walked through that gauntlet and allowed his body to be beaten for us that we might be initiated by the Holy Spirit into this family. It goes on to say, And we were giving the one spirit to drink. It means this is, well, let me go back. It says, Whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves are free. <clears throat> Notice what it does. It juxtaposes two different groups of people and two different kind of functions in life. It says, it says, whether, it says uh, whether Jews or Gentiles, Jews were seen as the chosen people. They, were, they had this privilege of receiving the Old Testament. They had all of these benefits of being a Jew. They oftentimes looked down on Gentiles, meaning us. They called us dogs. They thought we were dirty. They thought we were kind of uncouth. They didn't like our dietary practice. They didn't like our hygiene practice. And they looked down upon us. Then you got the issue of slave and free, which is kind of a more of a function. A slave is someone who is indebted to uh, someone that they have to work for. A free person can go and do what they want to. They really juxtapose this person in their religious essential identity around religion, the other about function. And the passage says right here, it says, hey, whether you're a privileged Jew religiously or a pagan or whether you're a slave or free, it says, hey, we all drink from the same water fountain. That God makes no distinctions that we all come in and we're all drinking from this fountain. This fountain of the Spirit that brings life and it brings hope. It reminds me of the passage of Jesus in John where he meets the lady at the well. You remember the story? So Jesus is going through Samaria. 
Usually they wouldn't even go through Samaria. They'd go around it because they didn't want to see the Samaritans because they were compromisers and the Jews just disliked the Samaritans. They would rather walk 50 miles out of their way in the desert than to walk through that town. And Jesus walks right through the middle of the town. And he sees a lady there. She's filling up her water buckets during the heat of the day. And the reason she was doing that is because she was seen as a lady with very loose morals, and the other women didn't want to be around her. They typically would go fill their water in the morning or in the afternoon when it wasn't so hot. So she's there by herself in the heat because she's shamed, and everyone is marginalizing her. So Jesus goes to her, and he asks her about the water. And she said, sir, you got nothing to draw water with. And he says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water because I can give you water that will quench your thirst for eternity. And she goes, how are you going to do that? This is what Jesus is saying. He is saying that I provide this, this nourishment and this water that satisfies your deepest longings. And, and this wa- there's just one water fountain for us all. You know, it's kind of interesting for the last, I don't know, since, really since I've been at Grace, I've probably talked to, talked to 20 people here that said this, this what I'm about to tell you. They struggled with God's love. They struggled with it because they just didn't understand how God could really love them. Maybe they had something in their background. You know, maybe they'd made some really bad decisions in their life. They just were filled with shame. Maybe they had been told as a kid or all their life that they didn't really matter and that nobody really loved them. And they just brought that bad theology over into God. But they just thought there's no way that they can go and drink from the spirit that gives nourishment in life and really embrace how God sees them, that they're not marginalized. They're on the end. They've been initiated into this family. And when I, when I just read this part, that we were all given, whether Jew, Gentile, slave, or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. And then it goes in talking about the body and the diversity of the body. Let's keep reading. It says now, it's talking about the body. It's talking about the different functioning in the body. It's talking about giftedness within the body. If you read, if you read the first part of, of Romans 12, 1 through 11, he's talking about spiritual gifts. And he's talking about how those spiritual gifts can operate in our life. Before we move on, I'm going to read you a list of spiritual gifts that we have um, not just in this passage, but other passages. And listen as I read the, uh, all of the different spiritual gifts. There's administration, there's discernment, evangelism, exhortation, faith, giving, healing, helps, hospitality, knowledge, wisdom, leadership, mercy, serving, prophecy, speaking in languages or tongues, teaching, um, and sometimes another one is called shepherding. You've got these 17 different gifts. And here's what a gift is. A gift is a a spiritual gifts or special abilities used for spiritual persons given to each one of us by the Holy Spirit and the way that God wants them and when He wants them that we might function as a body to accomplish the purposes that He has for us. That's a spiritual gift. And so now, what's taking place in this passage right now in the book of Corinthians is there were people who were gravitating towards spiritual gifts that glittered. That there were people who were gravitating toward the type of spiritual gift that would give them more attention. 
And so Paul now was going to push back on that idea of gravitating and desiring the gifts that get you more attention, like teaching, like, like what I'm doing right now. It's a spiritual gift, it's good, but just the attention that comes from this. Here I am standing here in front of 100 people, and y'all are going to watch me for 35 minutes. I did it last time for 30, 35 minutes, and there were 300 people in there. Do you know what I mean? There's just this thing that, that if you're not careful, that you gravitate toward that which is glitter, and then what Paul is going to be doing, he's going to push back against that. So, let's keep reading. It says, Now, if the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an, I, I'm not an eye, I should not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Look, look at this, verse 18. But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Here's, what, here's what's taking place here. That Paul is making a distinction in these two sections between essence and function. Essence being value, essence meaning worth, ex, essence meaning access to God, function meaning a job, that what I do, that what I, how I operate. There's two different things, and those things are easily combined. And what, he is, what Paul is doing, he is tearing those two apart. Because we live in a culture that doesn't do a great job of making those distinctions, do they? I was thinking, the, um, just being a little bit sick this week and watching a lot of TV, we, um, one of the shows that I kind of watched a little bit is the shows like Marrying a Millionaire shows. Who's, don't, don't lie to me. Who's, who's watched some of those shows where the, a guy's a millionaire and he's getting married to somebody really young or whatever? There's this, there's this one guy, and he's about 60 years old, and he functions well. In other words, he's pretty smart about investing in real estate. Made a lot of money because he has kind of a wisdom or maybe kind of a gift around making decisions about how to invest money. But that is tied to his essence. Everywhere he goes, everybody's kind of pan. He's a millionaire. And he's opening up his car door. Everybody can't wait to see him. He's about to marry like a 21-year-old beautiful girl. Doesn't have a great personality. He's not that handsome, right? But he's got everything. Because they tied his value and a function that he does. But it happens everywhere. I mean, I mean we could walk around this school right now. And we could go to the different places where people reside and we'll go, essence and value. We'll go, this person probably gets more attention. We'd look at a bigger office. We might go to a little room where somebody sits as maintenance people. And we know that there's been this tie between essence and value. You go to any office complex, you go to most churches, and you can walk around and you can see who's the most valuable. And here's what Paul is doing. He is saying, I'm going to rip those two things apart. Paul is saying that in the context of the body of Christ, everyone has access. And not only is it true that, that 
We shouldn't tie value with this attention, but he's going to turn it upside down and he's going to flip it on his head. Um, you know, when we think about gifts, you know, <clears throat> a gift is an empowerment, an ability that comes from God to do certain things well. We listed all that, but it's also, it illustrates a limitation. Um, I remember um, uh, graduating seminary. Um, this had been about 1994, and when I was in seminary, one of my best buddies there was Matt Williams. Some of you know Matt Williams. He was in Grace Church in Greenville, and, um, and that, a lot of people came from that way. Plunk used to be one of the pastors there, and he and I met for, I don't know, we probably met for a year every day planning Grace, Grace Church. <clears throat> well, he went one way, I went the other. We stayed together, we stayed in touch. His church just flourished. People were coming to faith. People were being discipled. And I didn't. You know, I, it just things, I don't necessarily say things went bad, but I just didn't. And it was about, I don't know, I would say 2005, it hit me. I'm just not gifted in that area. There's things about being in pastoral ministry, lead point ministry that I don't have the giftedness for. And it bothered me at the time. I remember thinking I'll always have an asterisk by pastor pastor with an asterisk. Because I, because I knew that I'm probably going to have to get a job to earn a living because I, I just didn't have the gifts to do that. It really wasn't until about seven years ago that I just really made peace with that. And I realized that God put me exactly where he wants me, how he wants me. There's limitations to what I can do and can't do, but I'm all right with that because I just know God's hand and I'm going to be exactly where he wants to be, how he wants to be, when he wants to be, when he wants me because, of, because it's in his hand. There's limitations around giftedness and there is expressions around giftedness. God's timing is perfect. His placement is perfect. Starting in verse 21, we start seeing this, this begin to turn upside down. Notice what it says in verse 21. It says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Let me say that again. He is saying certain parts of the body, that parts of the body that may glitter and get more attention, should never look at the parts of the body that doesn't get attention and doesn't glitter and say, I don't need you. He said it's really the opposite. He said in reality, it is the parts that, that are typically marginalized in the body that are indispensable. And it's the ones that are kind of really thrown to the front and, I, and like iconized, if you will, they're the ones that sometimes are not as indispensable. In other words, I mean, where would the worship team be without all that somebody setting all this up? Where would you be right now without chairs? You got Leon Matthews back there, and he's been serving faithfully uh, in, in AV for, I don't know, as long as the church has been here. What happens without him? What happens in your small group when somebody's not taking notes, when y'all go out to eat somewhere, you go to a park? Somebody's got to bring forks. It's not magic. When you're not eating with your hands, somebody used their giftedness to create an environment where discipleship takes place. 
There's often times in your small groups you'll see somebody over in a corner and they're talking. And it's probably somebody with the gift of mercy who's asking questions and bearing the burdens of someone. They, they, there's this indispensable parts of the body that we have to kind of recognize and see that it's there. Notice what it says on in here. It says, <coughs> the parts that are... Uh, uh, it says... On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, he said, we treat with special honor. Paul says the way that we function here on this earth, in this body of believers, is that we recognize the indispensable parts of the body, those that don't glitter, those that don't get all the attention, and we recognize that without that, we're in trouble. We never look at that in a marginalized way. We never think about that in the way in any kind of disrespect. That Those are the ones that are really elevated. And that's what he's being clear on. Notice what it says next. He says, that's what we do. He says that we... That we um, uh, I'm messed up here. And the parts that are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. Here we go. It says, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to parts that lacked it. So not only are we called to recognize this parts of the body that bring value and are indispensable, but are oftentimes marginalized, it says, God does that also. That God brings honor to the parts of the body that we sometimes don't even recognize is taking place and is marginalized. It says God, He makes that right even when we don't get it right. I think of a couple of passages in Scripture. And just in, in the sense of how does God make this right? How does God go about correcting when we marginalize and not appreciate, but God says, I'm going to bring honor to it. Uh, I think about the passage in um, uh, in the book of Luke, and Jesus is in the book of Luke, and it says that an argument, Luke nine, says that an argument started among the disciples to which one of them would be the greatest. The disciples come together; they're anticipating a new kingdom will start. And Jesus will usher in this new kingdom, and the Romans will be kicked out, and God will plant a kingdom there, and they're going, hey, in this new kingdom that's going to happen real soon, is what they're thinking. Who's going to be the greatest? They're jockeying for a position of prominence and privilege. And Jesus says, hey, in this kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus tells them, I'm going to flip this model on its head Jesus is saying, we're not going to go by the rules of culture. We're going by the rules of the kingdom, and things are going to be turned around backwards. There's another passage in, in Matthew, and Jesus says this. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. He is saying when you are living out your Christian life, when you're living out your acts of righteousness, be careful that you're not doing it for attention. He says, be careful that you're not living out your righteous acts, living out your giftedness in a way to get attention, in a way to get likes, in a way to be known, in a way to this, to self-promote. He says, if you're doing that in a way that self-promote, that will be your reward 
people patting you on the back and telling you you're wonderful, there's your reward. And when you get to heaven, there won't be a reward. I wonder what that really looks like. Um, <clears throat> you know, how is God going to correct this in the next kingdom? And I just had a, I just, my mind started going kind of wild when I began to think that. I thought, you know, maybe, maybe one day that they're in heaven, they're, you know, because the Bible talks about people giving gifts and the first become last. And there's this gift giving ceremony of worship in the new kingdom and in heaven and people are worshiping and they're up front. Our facilities team, you know, our AV team, all the people in your small group who make things happen, and they're up front, and they're worshiping and praising, and one of them says, hey, y'all, where's Richard? They go, he's back in the back. <laughs> they go, hey, Richard, come up here. And I'm going, no, 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 I'm good. He won't let me. I'm fine. I'm happy. I'm praising. I'm worshiping. I got some rewards back there. It's good. I'm happy. And they go, oh, where's Krause and Plump? Yeah, they, they're further back than me. No, not really. Not really. You know, it's kind of fascinating to me. Um, not fascinating, but all throughout Scripture. You always see the body of Christ, Christ's life, moving toward the marginalized. We talk about that a lot here. Just a second ago, there's something happening today. A lady who's going down to the border because of marginalized people. You know, it's not just, again, that's not a branding thing for us. Hey, let's be the church who wants to like, cares about marginalized people. I mean, it's everywhere. You can't even read the scriptures or the gospels or anywhere where there's not this movement toward to care for people who are marginalized, whether it be in the body, whether it be in culture, whether it be around poverty. There's always, always, always a movement toward marginalized people. It's, it, it's not even hidden. It's kind of fascinating sometimes when you think about how churches have neglected that kind of th that kind of living for so long when it's just so obvious. It's like, what Bible do you have? And it's kind of, it's, it, the whole Bible moves toward the marginalized, and here it does it too. There are people in the, our body of believers, and they're not going to get the same amount of attention that other people get. They're kind of marginalized. They're living out their gifts, and it says, and those people are indispensable. That things don't work without them. Like, shut the doors and let's go home if they don't. That's what the scripture is talking about there, is that, is that they're indispensable. Here's part of what I hope this message makes us realize. A few things. One is, is that God has given you a gift. That God has given you a supernatural empowerment, ability to work inside of his body the body of Christ to promote his kingdom. Number two is, is um, and to recognize that if your gift doesn't express itself in a flashy way, that it's perfectly fine. If you're not getting what you dreamed of, like what I dreamed of in seminary, what my life would be like, and then I recognized there was limitations around me, it's okay. It's fine. Because I'm exactly where God wants me to be. Another thing I want you to kind of think about is, what is your gift? You know, I read a bunch of them here. There's all sorts of gifts. And just, how does God gifted you? What do you gravitate toward? 
What do you kind of want to do? The Spirit is even outside of your consciousness. The Spirit is moving you, and He's directing you in a certain way. And what is that way? And how does it line up with this? And then how do you work in the context of this body, this family, in a way that we would promote God's kingdom? Hey, I'm going to get the band to come forward. Hey, y'all, I mean, it's, you know, I, <laughs> it's a privilege. You know, sometimes I always have to um, um, mind myself around giftednesses and responsibilities because the last thing in the world I'd ever want to do is to make you or make anyone feel like this responsibility we have to operate in the context of our gifts is some kind of a a tiresome and worrisome duty. And you're going, ah, that's just another thing that I got to do. I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to do stuff at the church too. It really couldn't be further from that. That is this privilege of being part of this family, being part of the larger family of the kingdom of God, that we are representing the creator of the universe to promote his kingdom and he nourishes us and he brings satisfaction to us and joy and goodness in a way that nothing else will. Our biggest problem is that we chase things that don't satisfy. And I think this passage here that when we're working in the context of our giftedness, when we're working in a way and we're living in a way that the Holy Spirit is working through us is satisfying. And that's what family does. You know, we're a family. We're unified. We're one. And and we're even going to recognize that even in a deeper level here with communion because this this is a family meal. You know, if you've been baptized by the Spirit, you've been cleaned and you've been awakened from the dead and we come together as this local family and we eat together. And this meal right here is, is a meal of recognition. It recognizes Christ is with us, and he is the body. You'll be handed something, and there will be a piece of bread or a wafer and, and wine or juice. The, the juice represents his blood that was shed for you, that cleansed you, that you might be initiated into this family. The bread represents the gauntlet that Jesus walked down, that his body was crushed He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin. And you're taking this in as a food, as nutrients. This part of who you are. The Bible says that before you take this, it says, be mindful. It says, consider yourself. Think about where you are in your relationship with Christ before you stand up and take. So take a few minutes before. We're going to have people up front. We're going to have someone in the back handing you the different elements. And when the Lord leads you, uh, you can come forward. Let's pray together. Dear God, we're grateful, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. Lord, I thank you. We're part of this family. Lord, you're the head. And Lord, it's it's a beautiful privilege. Dear God, thank you for everyone here, Lord. I pray that if there's people who are confused around their gifts, Lord, that you would bring clarity. 
Dear God, I pray that if there are people who feel um, marginalized or even disrespected in what they're doing, Lord, I pray one thing. I pray you would correct the heart of our church. And dear God, I pray that you would help that individual see that you honor that. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace. And it's in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace City Church Podcast. Whether this is your first time with us or you find the Lord moving you to engage differently or just learn more about who we are, we encourage you to find us at our website at www.thegracecity.com to explore all of the ways that you can give, connect, and engage. Thank you again for being with us. Now go live as image bearers of the King. Thank you.